your Bibles, uh, Exodus chapter 19, Exodus 19, uh, this is your reading from Thursday and Friday. My goal is for us to do both chapters, but we're not really going to spend a lot of time on the Ten Commandments. I, I trust you are familiar with them, um, but, but really the, the, the being at the foot of the mountain, waiting to receive uh, the handwritten Word of God. Um, so let's, let's read uh, chapter uh, 19 together. So if you will, stay with me out of reverence for God's Word. And if we can make it that far, we'll make a passing reverence, Lord willing, to chapter 20. Um, and it, of course, is all related to, to each other. Exodus chapter 19, beginning verse 1. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out the, from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness there Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of, of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they, they took their stand at the foot, foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, uh, The people cannot come up to, the, to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bring an errand with you. But not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. School Lord in prayer. Our Father, we always ask as we gather together, we have for, for many years, that you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands, and our feet, that our being is transformed and we are transfixed. Here we come at the foot of the mountain where God himself will descend. And here we have one who can ascend and descend as a great high priest, as a mediator, 
But we believe in one who has come down from God as God. So may we see here but a picture of of Christ as we celebrated this morning who enters into Jerusalem to come and save. And Lord, may I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. One of the things I've noticed in as we become more just morally bankrupt is is the battle cry is freedom, liberation. We need to be set free from moral constraints. But the goal is freedom. If if we can just put traditional values and worldviews to the side, then we can find freedom. And with this newfound freedom comes with it joy, peace. The word we usually use is happiness. We just want to be happy. But one of the things I've noticed is, is the more liberated we become, the more miserable we seem to be. And when I look at the Bible, I, I see... I see that the holier the people of God are, the more free they actually are. And what it is that you're getting here is is this, this picture of this monumental scene in the history of Israel that there can be no freedom, no peace, no joy, no contentment, no life apart from holiness. You've heard me say before, and I've stolen this from a thousand other people, there, there can be no happiness, if you want to use that, that cultural word, without holiness. Here, a people set free are shown that they are set free to be holy. And that's the big idea. There could be no freedom apart from holiness. And, and that, that is, again, what, what it is, is, is that we, we see here. Let, let's look at the foundation of our freedom in the first nine verses. Israel has finally reached Mount Sinai. And this chapter, we should state, is one of the more important chapters of the Bible. What I'm not saying is that some chapters are literally more important. Whether you're reading a genealogy or you're reading um, um, uh, you know, red letters, we, we, we view that all of Scripture is equally inspired and given to us by God. However, whenever we speak of the meta-narrative of Scripture, the broad narrative of the Bible, there can be no doubt there are important turning points in the story. Right, so, so we would, of course, begin with things like creation and the fall or, or Babel or the ark or, or certainly the covenant with Abraham, the, the story of Joseph or the Exodus. And, and there, there, there are these, these monumental moments throughout the Bible that we point to that, that you have to get these, you have to come to these posts in order to find your way through the story. And this is certainly one of them. Uh, and really, we could say virtually everything you read for the rest of the Old Testament, really the Bible itself, is because of what takes place in this chapter. So far in the Bible, uh, and even in your reading through our Discipleship 180, uh, there, there have been two great covenants. The first we've already referenced is the Abrahamic covenant, first given in Genesis 12. It's repeated, I think, in Chapter 15, chapter 18, and and other places, it's repeated with each generation, Isaac and Jacob in particular. And that is a unilateral covenant. That is, God enters into a covenant with Abraham that he promises to fulfill. 
Abraham, on the other hand, doesn't need to do anything for those promises to be fulfilled. In fact, it seems Abraham does all that he can to keep God from fulfilling them, right? So, so if God says, look, through you and your wife, I will, I will bless the nations and you will be the father of many nations. So Abraham, the first thing he does is, is I know I'm going to leave the land that God has given me and go down to Egypt and hand my wife over to other men, right? That is, that is overtime work there, okay? That is trying to make God's job harder. Later, he listens to the voice of his wife like Adam before him and he takes the fruit of the tree takes a, a, another woman. And once again, you, you, you're, you're kidding. He's doing everything he can to, to break uh, those, those promises of God. But regardless, it's unilateral. Uh, most significant when it comes to Abraham is in chapter 15 of Genesis when uh, God puts Abraham to sleep, much like he put Adam to sleep in the signing of the marriage covenant. And God walks through the severed carcasses without Abraham. Remember that's significant. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, that custom involves both parties. And they're saying as they sign this covenant, let what happened to these you know, executed animals happen to me if I break my end of the deal. But in Genesis 15, it's God alone who walks through that. It's unilateral. The Mosaic covenants, however, is a bilateral covenant. God, we see here, is both the source of both the blessing and the curse of both life and death. By entering into this covenant, Israel agrees to worship God and to keep his commandments. Now, if only I could think of a passage in the Bible where they are told to worship God and keep his commandments. Maybe you should turn one page to the right, right? Isn't that what the Ten Commandments are all about? Number one, worship God. Number two through ten, keep these, right? That's, that's the Ten Commandments. We can go home now. We're, we're done. But this is bilateral. They agree to worship God alone and to keep his commandments. And doing so will result in the blessings of God. And with the blessings of God aren't just financial blessing or, uh, or, or blessings of crop and, and fruitfulness of homes and, and the extension of the borders and the blessings of the nations. It comes with spiritual blessings with it. Joy, peace, love, contentment. Freedom, true freedom. To disobey the true worship of God and to disobey his commandments will result in the curse of God. Thus here, Egypt serves as an example of what it means to fall under the curse of God. And this, of course, is the storyline of the Bible. When Israel obeys God, they are blessed. When they disobey God, they are not blessed. They fall under judgment. In fact, if, if, if you can't read all the Bible, but you still want to see that pattern, read the book of Judges. Pick any chapter of the book of Judges. Pick either first or the second half of that chapter of the book of Judges. You're going to get the, 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 you're going to get the story, right? They, they, when, when, when God liberates them, they, 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 they follow God. And next generation, they rebel and they fall under judgment. And on and on the story goes. Yet we need to see that this covenant is more than just blessed and cursed. This, this covenant, this Mosaic covenant that is sealed and signed here at the foot of the mountain is, is, provides Israel with a new identity. This is very important for us to see. Who are the Israelites here? Don't read the Israelites through the New Testament. Don't read them through the prophets or through David. Read them in their context. 
They are slaves. Their entire life they were slaves. Their daddy was a slave. His daddy was a slave. His daddy was a slave for hundreds of years. They know nothing but slavery. They've only ever been in Egypt. Everything to them is a foreign land. And here they come at the foot of the mountain, a mountain they've never seen before. All they know is that this is where Moses first encountered God at the burning bush. Here they are. They are but merely slaves. But what changes because of this covenant, because they encounter God who has come down at the top of the mountain, they come as slaves, they leave as the people of God. They leave as a nation. And their identity is given here. First of all, notice in verses 4 and 5, they're calling in this new identity. God gives Israel their new identity by demonstrating, first of all, their story and his love. Now, what is the story? We see it there in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That is essentially, in one verse, what has happened in the previous 19. So, if you have been skipping out in your readings, shame, shame on you. I'm going to stick one of my elementary school teachers on you and you'll never do it again and this is a summary of it is that god redeemed israel from the hand of slavery he has bore them metaphorically on eagle's wings out into the wilderness of the foot of the mountain now notice here those slaves they have been redeemed they have been rescued and the language of rescue and redemption is all over the place here right you you yourselves have seen what i did to the egyptians in that the curse of god came upon them through the ten plagues and the redemption Redemption of the people of God comes, slaves set free. And this language of eagle's wings is a unique one in, uh, in, in the Bible, although there's, eagles are mentioned off and on. But in this context, it's, it's, it's very unique. And, and it's, 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 it's interesting. He didn't just take them from Egypt to Mount Sinai. They, they had a lot of walking to do, a lot of peril to go through, a lot of temptation to face. But it is as if uh, God took them from slaves to a liberated people as if you, you were riding on an eagle's wings. In case you want to know this, you may not want to know it, but I share it with you anyways. This is imagery that I believe inspired J.R. Tolkien in both The Hobbit and uh, The Return of the King. Remember, uh, spoiler alert, you've had 20 years to watch these movies or like 100 years to read the books. Um, is, is Remember Bilbo in them? Uh, ride out on, on, on eagles, right? The, the wild eagles, and later Frodo and Sam when they're at Mount Doom. This is a very similar imagery borrowed here. God reminds Israel who he is. I am the one who liberated you from the house of slavery. And in so doing, he explains who they are. They were slaves who have been transformed into sons. Their story matters. They're not looking in the mirror and thinking about today. They're looking in the mirror and they realize who I am today is not who I was yesterday. And what has changed from yesteryear to this year, yesterday to today, previous generation to this generation is one thing. God intervened. God rescued. God redeemed. And it's as if he bore me on eagle's wings. You can't understand who you are until you understand what God has done. And then notice his love there in verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. 
Now, what do we get in verses 5 and 6 are three descriptors. The first one is here in verse 5. And the description here is that these slaves are treasured possessions. Treasured possessions. I will in a bit, your child, or one of your children, or really every child, when they were little, they had something that you viewed as useless. But they viewed it as priceless. But their marking of that item, whatever it is, a stuffed animal, a blanket, a rock, a, a, a imaginary friend. At this point, I don't care what your example is. The value of that object is given to it by the one who loves it. So too, I'm willing to bet in your home, there are terrible drawings of scribble that you value more than anything else in your home. You can come to my office and you can find plenty of examples of those from my two kids. Why do you value those? It is an expression of love and because you value it, it is valuable. Here we see the people of God, slaves, and in culturally speaking, historically speaking, they are nothing but slaves. They own no land. They possess no land. They are wanderers and they are sojourners. Yet God says, you are a treasured possession. Now, Israel can choose either to receive that and thus believe it or rebel against it and still be stuck in their slavery. You see the options here? Freedom in Christ means you are treasured, not because you deserve it, because of what God has done. To reject that is to choose for yourself that of slavery. This is the gift of God's love. How we might see ourselves, how the world might see us, does not and should not determine who you and I really are. What matters is who God says that we are. This is why when we trust our feelings, problems get stirred up. You are who God says you are. If God says you are loved, you are loved. Bring your feelings into conformity to that reality. Well, that is their calling. Notice, secondly, their commission here in verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Notice here, identity requires mission. Identity requires mission. Having rescued them by his love, redeemed them out of slavery, he directs them to their true calling. And notice there are there are uh, two callings he gives them here in verse 6, right? We, we mentioned three descriptors. The, the last two are mentioned here in verse 6. The first one is priesthood. But notice he didn't say, I've called you to be a priesthood. He, he's called them to be a kingdom of priesthood. But with those who have been with us on Wednesday nights for, for a while now, that language of a royal priest will, will probably stick out to you. We spent some time on Melchizedek and Jethro and Moses and Aaron and David and Adam and Abraham and Noah and all the others. This is similar to that. Well, what is different from, say, Melchizedek or David and ultimately Jesus being the royal priest is that here God calls an entire nation to that role. They are a kingdom of priests. Priests, of course, had a special uh, mediatorial role. In fact, the best example of this role of what it means to be a mediatorial priest is Moses himself. In fact, a lot of scholars have pointed out that the story of Moses, the biography of Moses, 
is told, and then the story is repeated with the people of Israel. Think about it. Where does Moses begin? It begins in the household of slavery. And he goes to Pharaoh. But, and, and in that process, he passes through water. He goes out into the wilderness here at this mountain. He encounters God. It's the same story you're getting with Israel. They're in the household of slavery. They go to Pharaoh. They pass through the water. They go out to the mountain to encounter God. It's what to happen here in chapter 19. It's the same story. And along the way, we saw this Wednesday night, Moses stands as the mediator, the, the priest between the people of God and God, right? You remember when he fought the Amalekites? So long as Moses had his hands lifted at the top of the hill, Israel prevailed. But when there was no mediator and his hands dropped and he got Got tired, then Israel began to, to fail. So long as there was a mediator, there was salvation for the redeemed. Now, God calls on all of Israel to do the same. In fact, this, this, this language of mediatory, we, we saw the Amalekites in chapter 19, hear what we're reading. And did you notice how often does Moses go up and down the mountain? You talk about being tired. Whatever, how many Americans do you think could climb one mountain? <laughs> Let's be honest, right? <laughs> and he's doing it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. He does it seven times in chapter 19. He'll do it another seven times in chapter 24. That sounds important because it is. But here, this role is given to the Israelites. They are a kingdom of priests. Thus, their mediatorial work is global, not tribal. They are the people of God who are sent to the nations. By the way, if we had time, we could go with all three descriptions to 1 Peter. Well, Peter will cite this passage. You're a treasure possession. You're a kingdom of priests. You're a holy nation. And he looks at the church and says, God was talking to you. This is a global mission where we are God's people, the kingdom of priests to the globe. The third one of our, or the second one under the calling, but the third descriptor of our given away is their holy nation. Now notice these are former slaves consecrated as priests declared to be holy. Remember, there is no freedom or the blessings of God apart from holiness. Now, when Israel forgot that, you may recall, they ended up longing for slavery, right? In your reading, you can go back to Exodus 16. What happened? They got hungry. Now, I'm so glad this is not a problem with Baptists, aren't you? We never get hungry. That is a, seems like a, a good place to plug. Next Sunday morning at 9 a.m., bring food and I will eat it, right? I don't know what the rest of y'all are going to do, but I'm eating but in chapter 16, they get thirsty and they come to the bitter water and all that sort of stuff. You remember what they say, chapter 16, verse 2? The whole congregation, the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. Now, can I just pause there? I didn't see this before. Whenever you read the whole congregation grumble, can I tell you what really happened? Three whiny people with influence grumbled and got everyone else stirred up. They were in charge of their committees. They went to other committees, got them stirred up, and then they formed a larger unofficial committee. And that's what happened. Moving on, in verse 3 of chapter 16, the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Why? We sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. You have brought us out to kill us. What does it say? It would be better. 
if we were slaves so long as we were fed. I think one of the things I've, I'm learning, the older I get, you can get anyone to do anything so long as you promise certain things. It's amazing what we will surrender. Like freedom for security. It's amazing what we'll give up. Or chapter 17, they were hungry in 16, they're thirsty in chapter 17. Well, that makes sense. When you eat, you get thirsty. In chapter 17, what happens is they get hungry. God provides manna in chapter 16. He provides water in chapter 17. But before that, it says the people thirsted there for water. The people grumbled against Moses and said, there's your three committee leaders, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children, our livestock with thirst? And it says, if only we had been back in Egypt. We never went thirsty when our backs were breaking. It's amazing how we can Glorify the past and forget how miserable it was. And don't forget that throughout the Bible, our appetites is a metaphor for our desires. And without self-control, our carnal desires will become our slavery. And so what they do in verses 7 to 10, just briefly, is in a Democrat light fashion... The people, not just their leaders, the people agree to enter into this covenant. And here comes the foundation of their identity, or the foundation of their freedom, and in that, of course, they are a treasured possession. They are a holy nation. They are a kingdom of priests. Their identity is now determined by their Redeemer. Secondly, and lastly, we get the expression of freedom, the foundation and then the expression of this. Now, having entered into this covenant with God, Yahweh agrees to come down. Now, this should scare us all. And it is a scary scene. Moses, again, as a priest, must consecrate and prepare the people for this encounter. And so we hear, here we are warned of the danger of God's holiness. The people are to stay at a safe distance. I have no doubt they're wearing masks and everything else. Why? They'll be killed, Right? That's a joke, but, but they have to keep at a safe diff- distance, right? Because if God comes down, they will, be, they will be in great danger. They are to be cleansed as a sanctified people. And we're given a real glimpse of the fear and awe that, that we, we are to see here. Look, look at verses 12 and 13. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain will be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. As a holy all of Almighty God. You can go down to verse 16. You'll see something similar. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. You can go down to verse 18 and 19. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. As the sound of the trumpets grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. God answered him in thunder. Now this language of answering Moses in the thunder will be picked up by Elijah at the same mountain. But you remember it's very different. Remember the earthquake came, but God's voice wasn't in the earthquake. The thunders came, but God's voice wasn't in the thunder. It came in still small voice. The reason that passage matters is because God first showed up in this mountain 
to the people of Israel. In thunder, he spoke to them through the thunder. Now, I don't really know what that means practically or literally, but thunder's bad enough. We've all had thunder that shook the house and woke us up. I mean, I remember whenever we, we, we moved here, any time thunder woke up the kids, I grabbed my pillow and a blanket and went to the couch. I've been kicked out. All right? And all of us know there's only so much of such a storm we could handle before we find safety. Here is, Moses says, God is coming down to be with his people and it will frighten you. Why? The Holy One comes down to the unholy. And that is frightful. Here we see that God's holiness is not something to be trifled with, even though we do it all the day. For many of us, our spiritual practice is to ask for forgiveness rather than permission from God, isn't it? And that's exactly how we live our lives. Certainly God is love and there's no limits to his grace, but his holiness here is to be taken very seriously. The flippant attitude in which we approach our maker and live our lives is embarrassing at best. But what you see is that first God has redeemed his people, bringing them out of slavery. He has consecrated his people by declaring them to be holy. And then he guides his people by the giving of the Ten Commandments. Now, we cannot go through all Ten Commandments. Can I just give you a summary? If you keep the first, you'll keep the other nine. If you keep the tenth, you'll keep the previous nine. We're done. Let's go home, right? If you worship God and only God, you will not defraud your neighbor. You will not, you will not uh, uh, violate um, you, you know, their, their, uh, your, your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's possessions or harm anyone. You will not uh, uh, you know, do all these sort of things. Why? Because God is first. This is why you'll see it breaking down about four laws, commandments on worship, the worship of God, keep the Sabbath, uh, uh, don't make graven images and stuff like that, and six regarding loving your neighbor. Now, if only I could think of someone who said the two greatest laws in the summary of the law is love God and love your neighbor. If you can figure out who that was, uh, send me a tweet, right? Um, but that is a summary of the Ten Commandments. But, but can, I, can I just give you a few thoughts on the Ten Commandments and we'll call it a night, which means we'll get out of late. First of all, the Ten Commandments are not in of themselves redemptive. When we pound the Decalogue louder than the cross, we imply the good news of Jesus is law apart from grace. The language of the gospel is not do this. Rather, it is done. It is finished, Christ cried from the cross. There is no salvation found in the Ten Commandments. That was never its intention. They reflect sanctification, not justification. That is to say that if you think, well, I kept all the rules, I must be okay, you've missed the point of the rules. If you have a two-year-old, right? Let's bring a two-year-old out here. Let's have a big sign right on that wall, and, and we'll vote on it so it'll be okay. You put it right there on that wall, a big red button that you can push underneath it. And, and right above that, that button, it says, thou shalt not push. Every two-year-old who walks in here is going to push that button. The law exists, first of all, to reflect that we are broken and we will continue to do things that, <laughs> that, that, that are good, right? What's the old saying? Rules are meant to be broken? That's what we live by, typically. In fact, every law that exists around the world exists because someone had ruined it for everyone else. You realize that if we didn't drive like mad men and women, you know, like we were from Ohio, we wouldn't need speed limits, 
But we got speed limits because y'all don't know how to act. The law doesn't save, it condemns. We should come to the Ten Commandments and, and not say proudly, what a good person I am. Come to the Ten Commandments and like, guilty, guilty, guilty? You remember the way the law works isn't that your good works will outdo the laws you've broken. Justice demands you pay for the laws that you've broken. So if you go out here, you get pulled over, you're driving without insurance. That's a, that's a pretty serious law you're breaking there, right? And you go to the judge, oh, judge, you, you, you need to know, I have given a hundred billion trillion dollars to charity. He said, wow, that's really nice of you. But you're going to pay a little extra to the court for breaking the law, right? Those things don't matter for what it is that you've done here. The law condemns, it cannot save. Secondly, the Ten Commandments are insufficient for righteousness. Those who take holiness seriously would do well to begin here. But this is no checklist. One of the problems I find with legalism is we approach holiness as a checklist. Right? I'm, I'm a task-oriented person, and so I get a sense of satisfaction if I can mark things off my list. I can show you my office right now. I got a list. Half of the stuff has been marked off already. That is a good feeling. That is not what holiness is. You do not come home at the end of the day and say, well, I don't want to brag, but I didn't kill anyone today. <laughs> yep, look at there. I guess I'm done. That is not how holiness works. Because isn't that what Jesus warned us about? Outward holiness is not true holiness. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. And we're all like, yeah, yeah, that's me. Then he says, oh, if you've ever been angry at someone, you've already violated it. Oh, that's a problem. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. You've ever struggled with lust. Oh, yeah, we're all guilty of that one. And so on and so forth. Jesus is concerned with outward, outward holiness, but inward holiness. And thus here, it is insufficient for righteousness. Rule keeping won't make us holy. Only Christ and the transformation of the Spirit can make us holy. Quickly, thirdly, they point us to a Redeemer. C.S. Lewis said, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. This is one of the things I've found is when people come and they say, I've struggled with this sin for, for my entire life or since I was a teenager or since college or whatever it is. And then so I want to break it. I say, oh, that is good. And I want to do everything I can to encourage you and to help you in this process. You need to know you will, you will be quick to quit. You'll quit before the end of the day. Because you think so long as you've made the decision to, to break free from this sin, it's already over with. And we Americans struggle with, with long battles. We think, well, I should be able to take a pill. I should be able to go through a 10-step process. I should be able to do this or that. No. Remember that the law points us to a redeemer. It drives us to the cross. If we can't keep the rules, then what we need is a redeemer, one who will set us free. And this is exactly what it is that we get in the gospel. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom, 
and whirlwind, and to the blast of trumpet and the sounds of words, but sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word to be spoken to them. For they, speaking of this generation, could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. That sounds familiar. It's what we've read. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you, speaking of the early Christians unto us today, have come not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, the mediator of a new and better covenant, to be sprinkled into the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. You haven't come to Mount Sinai because that isn't where your identity is to be found. It's not where your hope is to be found. It is found at Calvary. Fourthly and finally, they, the Ten Commandments, reveal the liberating nature of holiness. Holiness and freedom, holiness and peace, holiness and joy, you can go down the whole list, are connected. You will not discover them apart from holiness. Think about it. At one point in human history, has adultery ever enhanced one's marriage? You think, well, obviously, preacher. Is it, though? Is it obvious? Look around at our entire community. Look around at our nation. Has murder or anger ever brought peace? I'll confess to you a sin. I refereed yesterday five games for eight hours in the snow, the wind, the hail, the rain. I felt like we were at the foot of Mount Mount, uh, Sinai. I mean, it was miserable. One little boy's team was getting destroyed. He had to take his his keeper gloves and he put them up to his face because the, the, the snow and the sleet was coming right into his face. So he's trying to play keeper like this, right? Uh, bless his heart. And, 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 uh, I didn't care. My back was to all that, so I wasn't as miserable as he was. But I've told you all my rule about refereeing, right? Do not, under any circumstance, acknowledge the existence of spectators. That's number one rule. Do not, under any circumstance, acknowledge the existence of spectators because they are miserable human beings. I'm talking about parents and fans and grandparents and visiting teams, all that sort of They're miserable people. You go to a tournament, like for select teams, like this was. This is one local rec stuff. This is, these are better players. And, and, and they're 10 times worse because they think there are MLS and Premier League scouts at this little 16-year-old game, and they're going to pick their child, and they're going to be multimillionaires living in London, right? That's, it's, it's not going to happen. But they think that. And I did not make a call because I shouldn't have made that call because I know more about soccer than they do and I have a better angle and they just got on that nerve. You know what I'm talking about, right? And I yelled at them and I said, that's enough. I broke my rule. (laughs) I just couldn't help it. At any time in human history has outbursts of wrath, anger or to the extreme violence and murder ever brought peace. No, but we are convinced it will. The left is doing it. We're burning down cities. The right is doing it. We're storming in capitals. And then we're wondering, I don't understand why my neighbor hates me so much. 
if we practice holiness, driven by love, we can have peace. Has covenants ever produced contentment? Have you ever gotten everything you ever wanted for Christmas and you were miserable within a week? The answer is yes. Has perjury brought genuine justice ever? Of course not. And yet we believe we can bypass holiness and find the longings of our hearts. And here comes the God on the top of the mountain who descends to be with his people. And he says, I have liberated you, I have consecrated, and now I am calling you to be holy. If you want to stay redeemed, if you want to live in freedom, you must live as if you are free. So, the question of the text then is how seriously do we pursue holiness? Who are we in private, for example? When the lights are off, when no one is looking, when the argument is over, when our mind begins to wonder, we're alone in the car. How seriously do we pursue holiness? Who are we in public? What sin has God been convicting of you? And when are you finally going to wage war against it? I love this quote. I've, I've used it a thousand times to John Piper. I hear so many Christians murmuring about their imperfections and their failures and their addictions and their shortcomings. And I see so little war. Murmur, murmur, murmur. Why am I this way? Make war. So as we come to the foot of the mountain, not Mount Sinai, but of Calvary, can we conclude that we are free? And if not... Why not? And could it be that holiness is the secret ingredient? Let's pray.